Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner, and today I'm joined by Rufus Greenway. Now, Rufus is Managing Director at Sound Environment Limited, a leading home automation and integration company in Greater London. Rufus, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Thanks for the invite, Scott. Yeah, absolute pleasure to have you. Now, um, first and foremost, um, given everything that's going on at the moment with the uh, the COVID-19 outbreak, in your profession, how have you been finding things in the uh, the last couple of weeks? Um, as, as someone who's obviously run a company for over 20 years and been through a, a couple of, obviously, you know, recessions, austerity, Brexit, um, it's a challenging time for sure. And, and I think one of the key uh, sort of monikers for me as a, as a leader is obviously not to make the, the wrong decision too early, but it's to try and wait for the facts to, to fully come in and, and obviously base any sort of leadership decisions on on, on, on facts rather than fear, uh, which I think is obviously something that's quite prevalent in the in ongoing situation with COVID-19 at the moment. For sure, it's really bringing good leadership um, and putting it to the test, um, I would say, um, because we look at the different contrasting approaches um, to this outbreak from the world's leaders. We've had uh, the likes of Xi Jinping and Giuseppe Conte, for example, who put their countries on lockdown quite quickly, whereas we yeah. have been much slower to do that. We've taken a much less hands-on approach. There was money there, there were procedures in place, but we did, in many respects, just wait to see what happens before imposing those stricter measures. Um, if we take that away from politics, Ruth, and which approach do you generally prefer as a leader when dealing with difficulties in business? Would you prefer to dive straight in and just get on top of the situation as soon as possible? Or would you let things play out a little bit, see how matters develop before you take action? I think you have to let things play out just a little bit. And I think, um, you know, I, I know obviously our government will come under fire for not being radical enough and, and quick enough. I think what they're, what they're showing is a great deal of faith in our population to actually handle the situation in a, in a different way, maybe to other nations, but to give us the responsibility to look after ourselves and to make the right decisions, which I think, again, shows that, you know, leadership is obviously, you know, it's a macro and a micro level of leadership. Obviously, at the big, on the big stage, you've got the, the politicians telling us, you know, obviously the, the way they th- think things should go. But on a macro level, obviously, we can all be leaders and do things better by just obviously understanding that the guidelines are being set down and how serious this is. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the approach we've taken is, is, is actually probably the right one. Maybe that's not going to go down very well with some people. Um, there's always, uh, as I say, a tendency when leaders are up there for, for obviously the opposition or other people to, to sort of take them down. That, that's their job, shall we say. But I, I think we have to just see how the crisis pays out. Um, obviously, we seem to be a little bit behind in the general you know, whole viral thing compared to the rest of the world. Anyway, after a couple of weeks, so I, I think it's a, I think we're taking a very sort of responsible approach to saying, look, we should all be part of this program. It, it should not just come down from the top as this is the law, because I think that's obviously something that human beings aren't very good at dealing with very you know, very well as, as we move forwards. Certainly. It's interesting that you pick up on government criticism there and criticism of the approach that Boris Johnson and his cabinet have ultimately decided to take. Um, With that in mind, and given the criticism that leaders of prominence like that can end up facing, do you think good and effective leadership is celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? Uh, It'll only be celebrated after the fact. (laughs) You know, if you can go back to the war, Winston Churchill was a brilliant wartime leader, but not considered to be a great peacetime leader. And he didn't stay in the job. So, 
um, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are on, on one day, you know, you'll always be judged on the next. And, and one of the, I think one of the key things we should really be looking at here as a, as a country is, and as a world, is that, you know, we've got this global pandemic, you know, what is it we're doing wrong as a, as a society as a whole uh, moving forward? Uh, and, and what are we going to do about actually saving the planet we live on? Um, that's, that's quite a, a, you know, a question which I think needs to be raised after the, the COVID-19, uh, I think, hopefully slows down. Um, you know, obviously, we've seen Hong Kong with a second wave coming in after sort of looking like they're all clear. So it's a, it's a very tricky time for us to sort of understand. I mean, we're talking three months at the moment, but I see myself looking forward that we may have secondary outbreaks, which require further lockdowns as, as other areas of the population that become, you know, exposed to it because we're not being exposed to it while we're locked down. So while we let our health service, you know, cope with the demand that's obviously arising at the moment, we have to be very careful that obviously as soon as the gates come down again in, say, in three weeks' time, if Boris said, oh, let's, uh, let's uh, unleash and, uh, you know, we can all go back out again and start sort of, you know, communicating with each other again, whether that's just not going to cause a second run of, of the virus, which would then cause a further lockdown and cause further delays. So, it, I think a, a measured approach, uh, it, and again, taking the advice of the professionals uh, you know, the people who work in the medical uh, world, you know, the people who are looking at creating uh, any kind of uh, vaccine for this. Um, we need to, you know, stay, stay clear that Boris isn't a leader on his own just making this stuff up as he goes. You know, he's been given the best advice from some of the top people in the country. Um, and therefore, there are many leaders involved in making these decisions. It just seems that obviously Boris is the front man for, for these decisions we make. So it's easy to therefore target him and say he's not doing enough. But then that is the sort of way of politics, to be fair. <laughs> mm, absolutely right. Um, you made a really interesting point about the changing face of leadership uh, with Winston Churchill being a great wartime leader, for example, but perhaps not being yeah. a great peacetime leader. Um, with that in mind, and also bringing in that focus that you'd like to see in future on the environment, on the planet that we uh, that we live in, do you think the face of what is perceived as a good leader is changing throughout history? I think I think in the world of communication, because we live in a in a world now with with all the you know the social media and the, the, the you know, sort of things that can go viral online. Excuse the pun. Um, it it that that's changing the way that, that leaders come across to us. Uh, obviously, you know we, we're all very familiar with sort of you know Trump you know running the presidency of the United States and using Twitter as as quite a vocal feed to how he's feeling. Um, that's obviously, you know, works both ways. That means obviously we're all out here in the, in the greater worldwide web, uh, passing around information. So there's a great deal more information available to us if we're searching for it, which allows us to make good decisions, uh, et cetera, and either agree with those in power or not to agree with those in power and make our views felt. So I think uh, leaders at the sort of high end of the scale, at the sort of top of the, the tree, shall we say, are very much more careful um, or have to be very much more careful because, as I say, a wrong move is, you know, basically will doom your political career, as we've seen with, you know, some of the ministers of Scotland recently and, and other things. So you have to you have to be mindful that the magnifying glass is well and truly now on us uh, as, as a race on, on the planet, uh, and therefore, just taking that into account, all, all decisions should be measured. And again, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, you have to get the facts in then make a decision. Now, the facts may change. Uh, as we know, life will always change, and therefore that might mean a different approach later. That doesn't necessarily mean the approach that was taken first was wrong. 
uh, it, it just means as more information has come available, we then take the next step. Very much in case of the, the lockdown we've had now, is we were given the choice as a, as a country to you know, self-isolate, to do, do well with social distance and everything else. And it became very apparent that people weren't taking that seriously. Mm. Uh, and therefore, then he's had to take that next step, which therefore shows, you know, he was giving us the choice. We were given the choice as a country to, to, to self-regulate ourselves and in showing that we weren't capable of doing that, we've had to go to the next level. Um, and therefore, we're, we're actually, it's our own responsibility and our own fault that that action had to be taken. It's not something the government wants to do first off. Absolutely right. And I think that's why it took so long for those measures to uh, to come into force as well. And we've discussed, of yeah. course, changing guidance, changing steps. It really does sort of bring under the microscope that it's so important for a leader to have that ability, not just to be proactive and have plans in place, but also have the sure. capacity to be reactive as well and really change tact when yeah. certain things occur. It's very important, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. I mean, again, in my own small world with my own small company, I'm obviously touching base with my my, my staff and my engineers, uh, I'm obviously saying that we can't work in people's houses. You know, obviously our, our job has stopped. You know, it's so stone cold dead in the water, shall we say. Uh, things are all on hold. But obviously in the meantime, you know, we're still changing our operation systems at the office to make us more efficient. So when the, the gloves come off again and the economy can hopefully restart, we're hopefully putting ourselves in a stronger position by better having better software in place. Um, being more educated a lot of the guys are doing online courses and things like that so we're using our time where we're not actually seeing customers actually to improve ourselves as a company so hopefully as and when you know the, the viral threat sort of should I say lessens and, and work can commence as normal the company itself will hopefully be in a better better way to go out there and find new business and, and help with the, the restart of what's going to be quite a troubled economy I believe across the world. Yes, absolutely. And um, albeit it's inevitable that it will be quite a long-term recovery, let's hope that we do manage to start to get the economy on that upward trajectory sooner rather than yeah. later. Um, if yeah, I was, of... curious, I, was, I was curious to think whether we actually, I don't know whether we actually fully made a recovery from 2008 yet, but uh, <laughs> that's just my own personal take on things. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, I recall actually um, watching um, a video clip uh, recently uh, with uh, Bill Gates actually uh, speaking at a news conference, um, I think it was, and uh, he um, said um, quite clearly that the human race wasn't ready for uh, the uh, the next pandemic and gave various reasons as to why that was the case. And that was also really thought-provoking to hear that. And also... Um, to discuss some of the measures that he um, thought would be uh, really good to uh, bring in as well, like sort of in more investment in health services, more effective communication and that sort of thing. Um, so it was yeah. really fascinating that there was almost a precursor five years earlier and maybe we've still been sort of caught flat-footed on that side of things. I, I think this is a good wake-up call. Um, I think, I think uh, again, it has been mentioned on the news. I think there is a, there's a great concern for me, certainly. I know we've had Brexit and we're kind of pulling back from Europe, mm. but... As, as someone pointed out to me, this virus doesn't have a visa. It's going to travel everywhere it goes. It doesn't matter whether you shut your borders or anything else. It's going to travel. Um, and my worry is that people are going to become quite isolated. Um, I think uh, you know this pandemic hopefully may, 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 may be just a one-off. But I, I think obviously with the way you know, we see nature and life going, this could just probably be the start of a number of you know viral pandemics that um, come out. This gives us a chance, as you say, to, to understand the process. As you say, learning the facts of what how this affects us. 
we could put certain things in place. I mean, just as they did in World War Two, you know, gas attacks and things like that meant everyone had to have a gas mask. You know, maybe we should be looking at that as a future thing. That, you know, remember the population should have some sort of, you know, face breather system that allows you to, to function and carry on uh, within safety uh, and, and help to control the spread of these things coming forward in the future. Sounds quite apocalyptic, but um, I think we should take this as a wake-up call and, as you say, make sure our services and, uh, you know, our, our professional frontline people are, are there for us and there's enough of them for us, basically. Absolutely right. Um, if we do backtrack um, a little bit um, further into this uh, podcast, because we did mention the likes of um, Winston Churchill and Boris Johnson mm. as uh, names, um, mm. are there examples of leaders of that ilk who've maybe been an inspiration to yourself in your own style of leadership, Rufus? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I grew up as a Thatcher child, <laughs> as they say, back in those days. I think I actually came out of university into a, into a recession as well. Um, I think the thing that has formed me primarily as a, as a leader was possibly my upbringing in some respects. My, my parents were quite uh, serial in, in, in the terms of setting up businesses, running businesses, then deciding to do something else, setting up another business that showed uh, that these things were always possible. In terms of when I sort of made the decision to set up my own company you know, on, a, on the back of a redundancy check and, and, and the fact that I was working out of my bedroom, um, I've become a leader in that respect. I've had to train myself, and I think it's really important to, to maintain. Mm. Again, I find that whenever I feel that I'm stuck as a leader or stuck in business in any way, shape, or form, it normally means I've stopped learning, and I need to actually go out and seek that resource uh, to improve myself uh, to then allow me to make the right decision once I've had that information uh, you know, imparted to me from the situation that I may find myself in. So I think continued learning probably, uh, and uh, the, the, the want to find details and information to help me make these decisions has made me the leader I am today. Um, I can't think of anyone, I, I would put on a pedestal and say, oh, this person made me, you know, uh, apart from, by the say, my parents, um, would, would say that, that, that I've become what I am because of, you know, so you say someone in politics. So I don't think that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it links back to that idea of leadership being celebrated as well, because so many examples of good and effective leadership do go very much under the radar as a result of that, because absolutely. they're figures of prominence. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned you're bringing I, there. Um, yes, go on. Yeah. I just think, I think as you said, I said slightly earlier, I said, I think, you know, as you say, people can do some brilliant things uh, and they will be forgotten in an instant by someone making a mistake. And unfortunately, that that seems to be the way of the world, which is quite negative. Mm. Um, as I say, even, you know, even you know, past authors and things like that who who come from completely different times to us, who, who grew up in a completely different environment and situation, have been you know pillared by today's society as saying either they were racist or they did something wrong or their writings were incorrect. But you'd have to immerse yourself in that time before you could make that decision, because mm. as we know, the facts have changed as the future's gone on. So. Sure, people can make different decisions on them now, but back in their own time, they were the leaders of our time and people respected them and looked up to them. Um, so I think it's important for us to remember that because as, I say, as humans, we all make mistakes. And it would be a shame to think that when we're all you know, gone, it's the mistakes we're remembered for. You know, I think most of us would like to be remembered as being good people who made a positive impact on the world and did good or made people happier or improved life for people, uh, rather than obviously 
we all made mistakes. <laughs> absolutely, because fundamentally, be you a leader or somebody who's under a leader, we are all human. That's absolutely right. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Absolutely. Um, you did mention your upbringing uh, there, uh, Rufus. Yeah. Um, what I did want to touch on uh, with regards to that is, um, with that sort of upbringing, did you always imagine that you would end up in a position of leadership yourself in future? Um, did I ever think that? Um, I, I believe, I think, as I said, I've had very few jobs in my life, funny enough. I, I, my, my calling came very early on when I, at 19, when I started working in the, the hi fi industry, when a friend of mine who owned a hi fi shop asked me to help out. I was obviously very interested in music and things there. And that's just kind of snowballed from there. You know, I got a job as a you know junior sales, went all the way up through the ranks as you do sometimes. So again, I think that's quite important sometimes for leaders is that you've done the jobs that everyone else is going to be doing that you're going to be employing. So you know how it feels to do that job. You kind of know the technical uh, abilities that are needed. And again, the personal skills that are needed. Uh, and therefore, we have empathy and understanding as you as you as you climb through the ranks and, and get to the top of the pile. So it just seems after sort of becoming a management manager of a shop, uh, eventually that the next step for me would be to either run my own shop or run my own business. And that was the step I took uh, when I was made redundant, um, or quite what twenty something years ago now. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And um, it's very much about the journey to becoming a leader, isn't it? More than anything else and the qualities that you learn and develop um, as that goes through you, because it's important to note that maybe being a good leader isn't just something that someone's born with. I mean, it is something that you can develop, isn't it? And you can learn. I I think you have to develop it. I think there's a, I mean, obviously to put yourself up in in front of the, you know, the main stage, as I call it, uh, to to, to be a speaker at an event, you know, you'll find some people just say, I I could never do that. I don't know how you do that. an amazing thing so I think you have to have a, 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 a natural ability to be good with people um, to be you know well you know good, good at speaking and eloquent in making sure people understand your point of view but I think one of the big big factors as I mentioned earlier that as a leader you you constantly have to learn and look at the facts before you make a decision you then your your peers will judge whether you're a good leader on the basis of how many good decisions you make and whether they're always the right decision and then people will feel able to follow you um, and feel comfortable following you and confident following you. And that, again, obviously then builds your sort of leadership qualities that, you know, everyone says you're a safe pair of hands. You know, as I said, I've guided my company through various hiccups and, and, and uh, you know, things that, as I say, like recessions, uh, downturns in trade. Um, I lost my wife and business partner in an accident three and a half years ago, which was a major blow, uh, all sorts of things. And through all those or attritional times again with the help of friends and with the help of learning i've managed to reinvent myself and, and to come back out stronger and, and more resilient as it were to, to what's happening around us today and that does sound like uh, quite the journey as well um before we um <laughs> wrap things up uh, rufus do you give me an yeah. idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself or sound environment and what you hope to achieve in that time well, I have all sorts of plans to, you know, reach out and, and expand the company. Uh, and, I, and obviously, I will still be reaching out to, to look at that. Um, I think my my my, my company is kind of quite uh, linked to how the population feels about moving house. Obviously, renovating the houses—that's kind of when I'm involved, uh, you know, big time in those projects, etc. Um, so the confidence has to return in the in the general population to feel that they can go out and borrow money, that their job is secure. I think job security. And, and the path forward uh, through this, this sort of viral pandemic is going to be quite tricky because I've got a feeling that no one really knows exactly when it might end. 
Um, and I think, again, that's probably one of the, the main reasons why over in America they're having this, you know, massive debate at how big a, a, a you know, a, a bailout package might have to be. The point is, we might take a bailout package next week, whether it's 350 you know, billion, which is obviously, I think, ours at the moment, or two trillion is possibly what the state is going to be. But you might find in six, eight months' time, we're still flatlining. We've still got the bar. It's still going around. There's still interruptions to trade. So the future, I think, is, is, is going to be it's going to be trying. Um, I think it's going to make companies you know leaner. Uh, we're going to have to be more efficient and more careful with our resources. Um, and, and really, as you say, look 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 forward to the rays of sunshine. Hopefully, that a recovery will bring. And, and with that, the facts and the information, so we can make again good decisions on on what happens next. Absolutely. Uh, Rufus, it's been not only an absolute pleasure having you on the programme today, but also incredibly insightful. And um, I think it would be fantastic to have you back on the programme in a few months' yeah. time just to perhaps see how things have panned Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks ever so much. It would be a pleasure to help. Not a problem at all. Thank you for your time, Scott. Have a, have a great afternoon and, and stay well and stay safe. Yourself as well. And do take care in these um, extraordinary times that we're living in as well. Um, we'll we now hand you. over to um, Jonathan White and he was speaking with Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Trescothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Trescothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose 
what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex before a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance 
and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you were privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And 
you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies who have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to 
buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I yeah. actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change, 
and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form. And um, you know, we, I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.